You may not know the name John Leith, but he uh, no longer is with us, but he was a man that I admired for his learning and for his humility. He was the one who was my main director, uh, my director uh, who helped me in my dissertation on the ecclesiology of James Henley Thornwell. Recently, I was flipping through his book entitled Basic Christian Doctrine. And every time I turn to that and look at it briefly, I always find interesting insights. And I came across this passage concerning hell. And this is what he penned in that paragraph. Quote, Hell is the fulfillment of human decisions. Hell may be conceived as God's ratification of the decisions that a human being has persisted in making for him or for himself. And then he goes on to quote another. He says, someone has said that the only valid argument for hell it is, that is that if one wishes to go there, there ought to be a hell for one to go to. End of quote. Now, this passage reminds me a great deal of what you find in C.S. Lewis's imaginative work, The Divorce of Heaven and Hell. Hell's for other reasons, of course, but surely Leith is right in the way that he puts it. It is a summation of all of our decisions and desires and intentions. So keep that in mind. That is the context that I read, Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. And so that, in a way, will color my interpretation of chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. But in looking at that text, I want you to see this about the text. The text identifies Jesus as the one God who is the sovereign Lord of all, including the beginning and the end of your life. In other words, our text sets forth a strict monotheism as strict as any devout Muslim might ascribe to, but identifies, and this is the key, but identifies that monotheism with the person and actions of Jesus Christ. It identifies that monotheism with who Jesus is and what he did for us. To put it another way, monotheism is Trinitarianism, and Trinitarianism is monotheism revealed in the redemptive love of Jesus Christ. Now, that is a lot to think about, and it's put in the language that's difficult for many modern people to understand. So my job today was to unpack that so that you get the point even more clearly. But let me make two observations about this text, which is found in Revelation chapter 1, and it does, the last half of, of the verse in chapter 4 to chapter 8, 
I want to make these two observations about the text before actually looking at the text. The last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, is by far the most Trinitarian book in the New Testament, except possibly for the Gospel of John. Everywhere you turn in the book of Revelation, you are encountering the Trinity. Now, that word is not used. It doesn't appear in the Bible. But the phraseology, the way it is put, was very meaningful for those first century Jewish believers and later the Gentiles. They understood the language. And this book sets forth a strict monotheism, but a monotheism that is in Trinity, that is Trinity. And... Uh, the second observation I want you to uh, see is that the Trinitarian language of this passage is like, if you will, the one side of a parenthesis. You have to find the close of the parentheses in Revelation chapter 21, verse 6. Now, this is significant because Revelation chapter 21, verse 6 harkens back to this language. So everything in between is in a parenthesis. Now, what's in the parenthesis? Well, it is the revelation that God gave John on the Isle of Patmos, an obscure isle on the fringe of the Roman Empire. Here, God was revealing himself to John and tells him to write this apocalypsis or revelation to which John begins to write. And the revelation really begins in chapter 1, verse 9, and in many ways it concludes in chapter 21, verse 5. It's all in the parentheses. And what it is outside the parentheses is the Trinitarian revelation of God himself. Now, keep that in mind. Everything has a context in life, and the context here, of course, is that God gives the revelation, and God concludes it. He gives it to John, who is a mediator, but God is in all things, and is all things, and above all things, and under all things, for there is only one God and one divine reality. And so John essentially includes the revelation with the Trinity as he begins it. Let's look first at this point. God is Trinity as revealed in history. You know, we would not understand what the Trinity is or even believe in the Trinity or understand that God is Trinity except for the fact that God has revealed himself such in history. He has revealed himself as Father and as Son and as Holy Spirit. Now, many of you know that when we speak of the Trinity, we're not talking about three gods. We're talking about the one God. This is a strict monotheism. But it means that this one God has revealed himself in this way in history so that you might know who God is and what God is about. Also, that you might be redeemed from your sins. Notice Paul begins, or I mean John begins, with a salutation, as the Apostle Paul does, as the Apostle Peter does. He says, grace and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. 
Grace and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Now, that phraseology is found throughout the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, it is found seven distinct times. No accident. Yes, you know, the book of uh, number seven is, is the number of completeness in the book of Revelation. And that phrase is found throughout the book of Revelation seven times. Now, you might count eight or nine, but you would be counting in the wrong way. There are actually seven. And as you see that, you begin to understand that this is the revelation of who God is, a complete revelation that God wants us to know about himself in our life in this world. Now, this language happens to be very reminiscent of Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when God reveals his name to Moses at the burning bush. And what you are to take from this, what you are to take from this, that this language is saying that the triune God is to be identified with the God of Israel. The triune God, Christians who believe in the Trinity must never forget that we are talking about the God of Israel. The God of Israel, who is the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and who reveals himself to Moses as I am who I am. Both that language and this language speaks of the eternality of God. That is the connection. Now, you may not make it because it's it's subtle in in a real sense. But John the Revelator understands it. His contemporaries understood it. Philo, a great uh, philosopher, Jewish philosopher, who was roughly a contemporary of Jesus in Alexandria in Egypt, (coughs) used this very language to speak of that passage in chapter 3 of Exodus, where God encounters Moses at the burning bush. And so when John uses this language, he really, if you know your Bible and understand, this is in English and Hebrew, to go back and remember that this is the same God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. What then are we to take from this? Very simply, we are dealing with the same God in the book of Revelation as we are in the book of Exodus. It is the very same God he's speaking as to his eternal being Remember, we're always in the parentheses. We're finite. God is outside the parentheses. He is eternal. There is nothing else eternal except God himself. Everything else is created. If you will, God is a simple being. He is a spirit. Simple here means not made up of parts. Therefore, God is eternal, but everything within the parentheses is made up of parts and it dies. Everything that has parts is subject to death and decay. So God is outside the parentheses. This is the eternal one of Israel. And John wants you to know that his revelation is in keeping with the prophets of old. Now, God is also a trinity that is revealed as Holy Spirit. Look at our passage again. And let me read the language. And he goes on to say, To him who loved us and has, excuse me, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits. Now, I said that phrase appears seven times, the first part, and now he talks about the seven spirits. 
or the Holy Spirit. This is the way of talking about the completeness, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, who is also God. So on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, they understood the Holy Spirit to be a divine outpouring, just as God had created all things through His Spirit. The Spirit, in the book of Genesis, broods over the face of the deep, and all things come into being. And here we find the Spirit has spoken as the sevenfold Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, who is the same one who came to the church at Pentecost. And then he goes on to say this in this passage of Scripture. And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And he also wants you to understand that this Trinity is also identified with Jesus Christ. Whatever Jesus is, he is revealing the triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in so doing, he is described as the king of all kings, or in this case, as the head of all kings. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, this happens to be Sunday on the Christian calendar, Christ the King. And the reason I'm preaching this sermon is that I want you to understand that Jesus, in fact, is king. Just as the Father is king, just as the Holy Spirit reigns, the Trinity reigns. And that Trinity manifests itself in the history of Jesus Christ. Now follow the language, follow the thoughts. Who is God? When you see Jesus Christ, you are seeing God. When those first Christians beheld him and listened to him teach and saw him walk upon the water and saw him turn the water into water, into wine and and saw him rebuke the Pharisees for the hardness of their hearts. All of this, they later looked back and said, this is God. This is who Jesus is. Now, this is important for us because we know that Jesus came the first time and he comes again the second time. More about that later. But the important thing for you to see is that Jesus is the very expressed image of the divine being. When we see Jesus, we see the Trinity. Now, the second point I want you to get from this is that God is the Trinity as revealed in the actions of Jesus, not just in the person, but in the actions. There are some actions mentioned here. If you look at this, it says, And to him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Now, not only is God identified uh, with Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, with the Father of the Old Testament, but the Trinity here, or God, is identified with the actions of Jesus now, this is an important point. It might be subtle. It might in some ways seem to you all too obvious, but it, it is a subtle point. The first point talked about who, who is God. Who is God? Well, God is Trinity, as revealed in the Scriptures and in the history of Israel and finally in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, the next question that you might want to ask is, well, then what is God like? So many people will say to me in discussions or something, you know, what is God like? And I discover that what God is like is what their imagination tells them. Anytime you have a God that is the product of your imagination, you have the wrong God. That is an idol. That's why the Bible rails against idolatry over and over and over. Read Isaiah chapter 40, verses 50 about idolatry and why it is considered uh, such a sin for Christians to commit or any believer. It means then that an idol is a product of our imagination, which is nothing, but it has values and it has a force that can draw us away from that which is good. So God is not the product of your imagination. God is not like what you think God is. The second thing, God is not like what the philosophers say God is. Part of philosophy is dealing with what is real, and one of the subjects that comes up in philosophy is, is there a divine being? Now, philosophers are employing only reason to try to address this question. And their reasoning ends up being a sophistication, a sophisticated imagination, because they're still relying upon their own sources. And the God of the philosophers sometimes could be quite imposing. But it is not the God of the Bible. The way that you are to understand what God is like is to look at the words, the actions, and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is God like? He is the one who enters into history and sheds his own blood for you. That's what God is like. Now, that can be comforting to the sinner, but let me tell you, the God of your imagination will not comfort you, and the God of the philosophers will not comfort you, but the God of the Scriptures, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who reveals himself in his actions, can bring you great hope and comfort in this life. And it is the only place where you're going to find any hope and comfort. You know, at times of great stress and trial, I'm often... Uh, put upon to bring out some words of sense and comfort, and I really can't do it. So much of life I don't understand. So much of life you don't understand. I don't know why things fall out the way they do, but they do. But what I want you to see is that God has not abandoned you and the testimony that he has not abandoned you and gives you great hope and comfort is the fact that his son came into the world and took up on human flesh and even died for you as he bore your sins away. Now, I can't always tell you why things happen, but I can point to one who is the key to it all. That death, destruction, Discouragement are not the last words. The last word is what Jesus did for us. So you say, what is God like? Well, God is for you. He is not against you. 
God is like the shepherd who goes forth and takes the one little lamb and throws him over his shoulder, the lamb that was lost, and brings him home. God is like that father that I'll speak about this evening, who waits on the hillside day after day looking for his wayward son who's thrown away his living, looking for him to return home. God is like the one who looks at the widow woman who came with her two mites and put them in the treasury and made a divine judgment by saying that she has given more than all for she has given all that she has. God is interpreted in the actions of Jesus. And this is a demonstration of God's love for us. You know, it also is a call to you to turn from your sins, isn't it? Every time the gospel of Jesus is preached, it requires something from the human being. And that is you turn to trust and repentance in his name. You turn to him and trust him. Otherwise, it is a, if you will, a divine drama without any earthly application. But the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which demonstrates the love of God, requires from you turning from your sins and turning to Christ in faith. There is not much freedom in the modern world. Think about it. Uh, modern man has largely rejected God. And in so doing, modern man, in rejecting God, has rejected freedom and has rejected freedom all across the board, whether it's political. Notice how, how many countries want to go toward totalitarianism. Notice how many countries and nations of the world want to pile up on more and more regulations and things to do and control other people's lives. It's almost demonic. It's as if freedom is despised. We talk about it, we love it in the abstract, but nobody really wants it. The same goes true for spiritual freedom. We talk about being free, but the only way we can have true spiritual freedom in the modern world is freedom through Jesus Christ who releases us from our sins. I'm ready to move to Uganda. Let me tell you why. The president of Uganda, a few days ago, when he was, I suppose, recently installed as the president, got up before the entire nation, and he led the entire nation in prayer in the name of Jesus. And he prayed that God would forgive him his sins and wickedness. And he was specific in naming them. Then he went on to pray for the sins of the nation and the injustice and the wickedness in the nation. And he asked for a new and fresh start from God Almighty. He says, we want this to be a just nation. We want this to be a nation where you can name the name of Christ. 
And remember, he is surrounded by those who would overcome and destroy him and impose an alien law, if you will. And I say to that president of Uganda, what courage. What a Christian outlook. I tell you, I think Uganda's future looks pretty bright with a president like that who was not trying to squelch the religious beliefs of the people or turning the ACLU on them like a pack of wolves to destroy everything that's good and holy and true. But here is a president, and all nations can take a lesson from Uganda. Here is a president who wants Christ to be recognized not only as the Lord of the Christian, but as the Lord of the nation. He has recognized that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Everyone will do that at the end. But it takes courage to claim that promise before the end. You see, he understood that God has made us a kingdom of priests and kings to serve him. And that our end is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it is fulfilled when he comes again. Notice the end of the passage. Notice the end of this passage. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. But in verse 7, he says that coming is like this. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So let it be, says the writer. Amen. Now, Jesus has already come in, in history. And when we celebrate Christmas, I hope every one of you know, uh, everyone, everyone understands, I should say, everyone understands that the one we celebrate is the triune God who's come to us in human flesh. I also want you to know that that one who came into history is the one who laid down his life for you, that you might be freed from your sins. But also, he is coming again. He is coming without sin unto salvation to judge the entire world. And each one will give an account of their life. And it will be a just and fair judgment. And just as I began with John Leith saying that in some ways, in some ways, hell reflects, if you will, the desires of the human heart, just as heaven reflects the desires of the human heart. And God will separate, separate the sheep from the goats. He comes at the end of history. You say, Pastor, don't terrify me with words of judgment. I don't feel good about myself now. Let me comfort you. The same one who judges you at the end of history was judged in history for you on the cross. And the one who took your sin and your judgment in himself is the one that you will face. And I tell you, we face him through trust in his blessed name, not in our own righteousness, but in his righteousness. There is terror in judgment. 
But for the Christian, the great comfort is that the God who judges me at the end is the one who was already judged in history on the cross for me. That I might hear his words, enter thou into the joys of thy Lord, thy good and faithful servant. Next week we start Advent. And this sermon's sole purpose is to help you understand two things. Who Jesus is and what he did for you. Or conversely, who God is and what he did for you. Amen.